0: The book of Acts is the history of the early church, but imagine that when we read stories of Christians throughout the later centuries, it's sort of like a continuation of the book of Acts. So we're going to jump into history, and we're going to see that, uh, the, some of the revivals that took place in America. So we're going to go back and look at England, and they had Spain attacking with uh, the Spanish Armada, but the Dutch and the English teamed up together, and with the help of a hurricane, won. But then the British and the Dutch began to compete. The Dutch had a global empire. They had Jakarta, India. They had Indonesia and so forth. And the British had the British East India Company. And so this is a a global fight. And one of the British admirals that is really good is um, William Penn, Sr., and he is at sea when the Puritans have a civil war and win and chop off King Charles I's head, Um, and so he doesn't really have to take sides because he's at sea, and he does lots of things. This William Penn Sr. captures Jamaica from the Spanish, and uh, then he helps restore King Charles II to the throne, and King Charles II, in response, makes him a sir or a knight, and he has a son named William Penn, and he's uh, uh, 15 years old, his dad is at sea, and a Quaker missionary visits the Penn household. His name is Thomas Lowe, and he begins to share with William Penn, the son, uh, about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then later, Penn recalls that it was at this time that the Lord visited me and gave me divine impressions of himself. Have you ever had divine impressions of the Lord on your your heart? Well, then later, 1661, the dad helps bring Charles II back. And young Penn and the dad are at the coronation of the king. I mean, we're talking, they're at the top levels of British society. And then this young Penn goes to Oxford, and he's a cavalier which is like the cream of the crop upper crust. I mean, his dad's the famous admiral, and he sort of acts like a messenger between the admiral and the king. Yeah, I'm here to see the king. Got a, got a message from my dad. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Come on, Mr. Penn, you know. And, um, and then uh, there's a group hanging around campus, and they're Quakers. And this young Penn remembers this Thomas Lowe, this Quaker missionary that told him about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this young Penn begins to hang around this Christian group. And in England, at the time, you had to believe what the king tells you to believe. You had to take the oath of supremacy, acknowledging the king is the head of the church. And if you didn't believe the way the king did, you were arrested. They had a five-mile act in place, where if you were caught preaching within five miles of a town, you're arrested uh, unless you had approval of the government. They had a, a conventicle act that says if you have five or more meeting in your home without approval of the government and you're talking religion, you've broken the Conventicle Act, it comes from the word covenant where two or three are gathered in my name. The police will bust into your home and r- arrest everyone. They later changed the name of it to the Riot Act. And so the police would bust in, pull out a piece of paper and read the Riot Act which says everyone must immediately disperse or you'll be put in jail where you'll die. (laughs) So it was so serious, it went into our vernacular. Read them the riot act. And um, and so uh, this William Penn, the group of Quakers is raided and everyone is arrested and they're booking them into jail. They're going through all the names and all of a sudden they see William Penn and they're like, kid, what are you doing here? Get out of here. And it happens again and again. And um, the... uh, the dad has to intercede to get his son off the hook, pulling a couple strings here and there. And uh, the young pen urged his father, I entreat uh, thee not to purchase my liberty, right? It's like, I don't need your help. And um, well, it caused such a stir that this young pen was finally expelled from Oxford, talking about an embarrassment to the dad. And this young pen, continues this, and the dad um, decides that, he's like, son, don't you realize that people have lost their heads for believing in something different than what the government tells you to believe? I mean, you could, you could die. This is like you're playing with fire. I was at sea when they were like chopping off you know, King Charles I's head and so forth, and um, finally the son, the father beats young Penn, chases him from the house, and even threatens to disinherit him. And so now this young pen has nowhere to go but to live with the Quakers. And he meets the founder, George Fox, and he travels around Europe with him. And he really gets into it. So at the age of 24, he converts and becomes a Quaker. Uh, they call it the Society of Friends. And then he returns to England, and he writes a pamphlet, the Sandy, uh, Sandy Foundation Shaken, and he was imprisoned in the Tower of London for eight months. Now, most of the times when you go into the Tower of London, you don't come out alive. <laughs> and it's more or less a death sentence. And uh, the guards, he asks for pen and paper. And the guards give him some, a writing instrument, you know, a little bottle of ink and a little feather they'd write with quills. And, and they're thinking that he's going to write an apology to the king. And instead, he writes a pamphlet, no cross, no crown. Christ's cross is Christ's way to Christ's crown. And he's just really serious about his faith. Well, uh, the dad is dying, and he intercedes again for his son's release, and then he tells the son, let nothing in this world tempt you to wrong your conscience. And um, so the attitude was that if... The king wanted you to believe what he tells you to believe. But the conscience part is this idea that if if the king is going to be there at the day of judgment standing next to you and can answer for why you believe something, fine, believe whatever the king tells you. But if the king is not going to be there standing next to you on the day of judgment, you're accountable to God for your own conscience. And so... Um, this uh, Admiral William Penn goes to great lengths uh, to get the king to promise not to prosecute his son after his death. He goes, I'm going to die. My son's probably going to get in trouble again. Please have mercy on him. And the, dad, the, the king says, okay, I got this. And uh, so when the dad dies, the son takes uh, his inheritance and he's going to buy a sliver of West Jersey, right? New Jersey, but this was... And where did that come from? Well, it all used to belong to the Dutch... And it was those Dutch Anglo Wars at which Admiral William Penn helped the British to win that took all the Dutch land of New Amsterdam and you know what later and that became New York and all these different areas and so this was land that more or less his dad helped win for the king and uh, instead of just giving him a sliver of West Jersey, this King Charles the decides to give young Penn forty five thousand square miles, making him the largest non-royalty landowner in the world and he names it after the dad Pennsylvania. And so William Penn gets all this as his personal property. He could have lived like, you know, a king the rest of his life. But instead, this young Penn decides that he's going to at first buy the land from the Indians at a fair price and uh, by the way, this is the same time that the Turks, 200,000 of them, are laying siege to Vienna, Austria. And they're defeated on September 11th, 1692. And so the um, Pennant names the capital city Philadelphia, which means city of brotherly love. And he says, God hath given it to me through many difficulties, will, I believe, um, bless it and make it the seed of a nation. And little did he know that it was the seed of a nation. And so he did a holy experiment. You see, every country in Europe, it was one Christian denomination per country. So England was Anglican. Scotland was Presbyterian. Holland was Dutch Reformed. Northern Sweden and Germany were Lutheran, Switzerland Calvinist. And of course, Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland stayed Catholic. But it was what the king believed the kingdom had to believe. And if you didn't, you were persecuted and you fled, and those spilled over and founded colonies. So originally, every colony in America was founded by a different Christian denomination. Virginia was Anglican. Massachusetts was Puritan. Rhode Island was Baptist. New York was Dutch Reformed. Delaware and New Jersey were originally Swedish Lutheran. Connecticut and New Hampshire were Congregationalists and Maryland Catholic and they did not get along, and they tar and feather each other and chase each each other's colonies. Um, But William Penn decides he's going to do a holy experiment to see if Christians of different denominations can live together in the same geographic area. Wow, what a novel idea. (laughs) And um, anyway, this was unique on planet Earth, this experiment that took place in Pennsylvania, that it indeed became the seed of a nation, Penn says, no person who shall acknowledge one almighty God to be the creator, upholder, and ruler of the world shall in any case be molested or prejudiced in his or her conscientious persuasion or practice. So in other words, in Pennsylvania, no one is going to be forced by the government to do something that's different than your conscience. Founding principle. And he says, but shall freely and fully enjoy his or her Christian liberty without interruption. So Pennsylvania's freedom of conscience provided an atmosphere in which revivals can take place. You really can't have a revival. Imagine being in Anglican England and the king's bishop comes and says, okay, I want to invite everybody to join the king's church. And of course, if you don't, we're going to take you out and back and burn you at the stake. Uh, (laughs) Anybody (laughs) not going to take up on the deal? And so his idea was you take away the coercion what do you have left? Just an appeal to people's hearts. There's no molesting from the government either way, so it's just an appeal to your heart. William Penn said, force makes hypocrites, tis persuasion only that makes converts. And so it's this idea that God loves you and he wants you to love him back. He doesn't need your love any more than parents do not need the love of their children, but they want it. God doesn't need your love, but he wants it. And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back. Right? You're made in his image. What's the most important thing in your life? Right? Is it possessions? Is it travel? Is it your job? I would say that it would, somewhere at the top of the list is the matters of the heart. It's loving and being loved. You know, guy's not dying. Oh, I wish I would have spent a couple more time, days at the office. <laughs> no, it's tell my wife and kids I love them, right? So if we're made in God's image and love, being, loving and being loved is like the most important thing to us, wouldn't it make sense if we're made in his image that this loving and being loved is important to God? You go back, I was reading through the, the scriptures. I did a search on angels, and the word "angel" is mentioned 289 times in the King James Bible. Not once does it say the angels love God. It says they worship Him, they praise Him, they revere Him, they minister unto Him, they carry messages for Him, and they defend His chosen. They smite His enemies. But it, it does not use the word. Now, when it comes to man, and then it says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." We love Him because He first loved us, right? Jesus tells Peter, Simon, son of Jonas lovest thou me? So love, by definition, must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. And so God wants to create an opportunity where you're not forced to love him. It's just freely given. And so that's what we see here in Pennsylvania. It's, by the way, it did become the seed of a nation. It was there that the Continental Congress met It was there that the Declaration of Independence was written, the Liberty Bell was rung, the Constitution was written there, and it was the first capital and the first abolitionist society in America was started in Philadelphia. And it was uh, 1688, the Germantown Quaker petition against slavery, right? Uh, And so we see that uh, this idea that if nobody, we don't want anybody to force our conscience, we don't want to force people to be slaves. And so, uh, Anthony Benizet was a Quaker. He is the one who started the first abolitionist society in America. And they're in Pennsylvania. And of course, Ben Franklin became the president of it. Now, let's look at Europe. The same time that Pennsylvania is being founded, you got a similar thing going on in Europe. Now, notice uh, that uh, it was 24 years old when uh, the young William Penn. Uh, took a stand, uh, but here's another guy. His name is Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, and in uh, the year 1719, he's 19 years old, and he um, uh, is his dad had died, and he inherited this big estate in Moravia, which is like where the Czech Republic is. It's on the border of Eastern Germany and the Czech. And um, so he inherits the estate. When he's 19, he's going to go on his grand tour. He's going to meet all the diplomats and all these kingdoms and sort of find out who who are the who's who when you want to lobby and get something done in the courts. And and he's in Dusseldorf. And he, in his off time, goes to the museum and he sees a painting of Christ with a crown of thorns. And at the bottom of the painting, it has a phrase that says, this I have done for you. Now, what are you doing for me? And so this 19-year-old is is struck by this. He goes back to his estate and he decides he's going to open it up for all the persecuted Christians of Europe that are being chased out of one country and out of another. And he opens up his estate that they can all come and live on there and have the freedom of conscience. They're, they wouldn't be forced to believe something. They could all come. And so they all show up. He calls this place Heron Hood, which means the Lord's Watch. And uh, he... uh That area is also called Bohemia, and there was a guy named John Huss in the 15th century that helped to bring the revival. So the refugees on Zinzendorf's estate were given freedom of conscience, but the endeavor almost ended before it began because the refugees started bickering bickering with each other over doctrinal rivalries, right? They all get chased out, but they're, they're, no, no, it's this, no, it's this. And the whole thing is about to collapse. And this young pen leaves his Uh, excuse me, Zinzendorf, leaves his palace and comes and lives amongst them. And he decides that uh, they need to have a a prayer meeting. And they have communion, and they forgive each other. And then it begins um, uh, in 1727. So now he's 27 years old because he was born in 1700. And so they pray, and they forgive each other. And then they pray all night and all the next day and all the next night and all the next day. And then they take turns with the kids and with the cooking and with the farms. And they keep that prayer meeting going all month, all year, next year, next year. That prayer meeting went on uninterrupted for over 100 years. This 27-year-old started it. And they just kept praying and praying and everybody taking turns praying and praying. And... um. Zinzendorf said, I have one passion, it is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus only. And so these young Moravians, they decide they're going to be missionaries. And in the next 20 years, they send out more missionaries all around the world than all of Christendom had in the previous 200. And these missionaries go to Canada, Alaska, Greenland, Intuit, Labrador, West Indies, Costa Rica, Belize, Haiti, American Indians, Cherokee, Lenape. They go to the Baltics, to the Carolinas, to Suriname, and Peru, and Egypt, uh, India, Zanzibar, Kenya—they're going all around the world. This little bitty group there, and the the first, very first Moravian missionaries that were sent out was uh, two young guys, and they decided they were going to go minister to the slaves on the Danish island of Saint Thomas, which today is part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And when they were asked, "How are you going to support yourself?" these guys said that they were willing to sell themselves into slavery in order to present the gospel to the slaves. So this was unique because they were not supported by a denomination. They were not supported by a big organization with a big budget. These were just young people. That's, imagine all the woke energy today. Instead of it, you know, smashing things, imagine if it was harnessed to spread the gospel and the love of God all around the world. And so they supported themselves, and even uh, economists uh, they call it the uh, Protestant work ethic, and they wrote books on it that it basically created modern-day small business capitalism. It was just them. They were just going to go to some strange country and work really hard, become successful. Why? So that they could fund spreading the gospel. And um, now some of them decide they're going to go to Georgia. And it's a colony that was started by James Oglethorpe, uh, who had fought the Muslims in Serbia and then decided he had a friend die in the English prison and he decided to start a colony uh, for poor debtors to get a fresh start. And so on the boat to Georgia, there are Moravians And they're caught in a storm. The storm is so bad, the waves are like, you know, 100 feet high and smashing on the boat. And and these Moravians are just, you know, down in the the hull of the ship. And they're just singing praise songs in the middle of all this. And, well, who else is on the boat but John and Charles Wesley? John Wesley is going to be the Anglican minister for Georgia. And Charles Wesley is going to be the secretary for James Oglethorpe. And they're, like, scared. They're like, we're going to sink. We're going to die. And then they're, like, running around in the boat. They run into the area where the Moravians are, and they're just singing praise songs to the Lord. And John Wesley basically said, "Uh, they know Jesus better than I know Jesus. (laughs) And the Wesleys try to do a a ministry there, and they end up deciding they're, they're a failure, so they go back to England. They go back to England, and they meet another Moravian who's waiting for a boat to go to Georgia, and he invites him to a prayer meeting. And they pray all night long. And the Wesleys are touched by the Holy Spirit, sort of like young William Penn, that he had divine impressions of the Lord. And John Wesley said, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And so... John Wesley decides to go over and live with the Moravians for eight months. He calls it the religion of the heart. He's like, you're, you're getting along with each other, even though you don't totally agree with each other on everything, and, and you don't have the government hanging over your head, threatening to throw you in prison and burn you at the stake. I mean, this is, and so John Wesley brings this back to England and starts a revival movement inside of the Anglican church called Methodism. And uh, one of his friends, they get him involved named George Whitfield, and he's set on fire and George Whitfield decides he's going to preach in America and he preaches in Philadelphia and Ben Franklin prints his sermons and distributes them up and down the colonies and Ben Franklin funds the building of a, a ministry center like, like a ministry center that you have, you're going to get. And so it becomes the... It was the largest auditorium in Philadelphia and later became the first building of the University of Pennsylvania. Well, Whitfield preaches seven times up and down the colonies, and where the colonies believed different things, now they began to see themselves as one. George Whitfield, in one of his sermons uh, in Philadelphia, said, there's not an Anglican, uh, a Methodist, uh, a Baptist in, in heaven. And everybody's like, what did he just say? And then he finishes the sentence, that upon entering those gates, we don't lay aside our badges of schism and join together in worshiping our Savior, Jesus. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. We're just gonna worship. And so this begins to spread, unites the colonies, which had been divided by all these different uh, denominations, and he, he draws crowds to 20,000 people preaching without a microphone. Could you imagine that? And, um, and he is the first preacher uh, out of this Great Awakening, by the way, came all these different universities. He's the first preacher to preach to mixed races. And that was a big step back then. And many of the black converts wrote the first songs known as Negro Spirituals. And one of those that heard Whitfield was a black, a free black uh, named John Morant. And he heard him in 1770 in Charleston, South Carolina. And Morant, Morant came to faith in Christ. Uh, he had been born in 1755 in New York. His father died when he was young. He traveled with his mother to Florida, Florida, Georgia, and then ended up in South Carolina. He learned how to read, played the violin and the French horn. And, but anyway, after he heard George Whitfield, he got saved and on fire. And uh, he became vocal about his faith, and his family rejected him. And so John Morant wandered away and lived in the woods, trusting God, and then he was befriended by the Cherokee, and he learned their language. And then, uh, as the tensions of the Revolutionary War start, the British are inciting the natives to attack the Americans, and it's even mentioned as one of the reasons in the Declaration of Independence that the king was inciting domestic insurrection with the, the Indians on the frontiers. Anyway, so Morant is captured by the Cherokee Indian chief, and he almost executes him. Well, Morant, while he's tied up, he's being prepared to be killed, Morant preaches to the chief, and the chief converts. <laughs> Could you imagine being all tied up, and they're about to kill you, and you're preaching the gospel to them, right? Talk about, uh, preach like, like your life depended on it. <laughs> and so the chief converts, and then gives him permission to preach throughout the entire tribe, And then he preaches to the other tribes, the Creek, the Catawba, the Hussaw. Then he goes back to South Carolina to preach among the slaves. Well, then the British catch him and impress him into the British Navy. And now he's on the British Navy, and then he ends up in England. And then he preaches in England for several years, and then he... uh, uh, returns to preach the gospel in Nova Scotia to a great number of Indians and white at Greens Harbor, Newfoundland. And uh, the missionary-minded, uh, was a wealthy lady in England, Countess Huntington, uh, she published a narrative of the Lord's wonderful dealings with John Morant, a black, and it went through 17 editions. It was so popular. Another that heard... Uh, the, the, the revival called the Great Awakening Revival at the time of George Whitfield was George Lyle. He was 23 years old. He was a slave. And his, uh, he, he said, I saw my condemnation in my own heart. I found nowhere wherein I could escape the damnation of hell only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lyle attended the Buck Creek, Buckhead Creek Baptist Church with his master, Henry Sharp. And his master was so impressed with George is preaching that he freed him. And then George gained a following, and he organized the uh, Silver Bluff Baptist Church in uh, Beach Island, South Carolina, 1773. It's considered one of the very first black congregations in America. And he then uh, moves to Savannah, and they're meeting in a barn on a plantation. It's Jonathan Bryan's barn, and one of those slaves is Andrew Bryan. The slaves took the master's last name, and he converted, and he was freed, and he took over pastoring the church, and that church, again, was also one of the first black churches in America. It grew to 700 members, changed its name to the First African Baptist Church, and then uh, the Savannah Baptist Association, at the death of Andrew Bryan, uh, writes, This son of Africa, after suffering inexpressible persecutions, hundreds through his instrumentality were brought to the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. George Lyell then went on to become the first missionary sent out from America to another country since 1792, and he goes to Jamaica to start a Baptist mission. And through his efforts, eight thousand people converted in Jamaica, and dozens of Baptist churches were formed. So you can sort of see: you got William Penn, you got Pennsylvania, you got uh, the, the Zinzendorf, and then they touched the Wesleys, and then they touched George Whitfield, and this Great Awakening revival up and down the colonies, and then these different black men heard Whitfield, and they started these works, and now it spreads to Jamaica. Well, after Whitfield dies. John Wesley sends a 26-year-old guy named Francis Asbury to take his place. And Francis Asbury preaches from Canada down to the Caribbean on horseback. He rides 300,000 miles, and he is preaching and ordaining people. And so uh, he ordains um, Harry Hoosier, who was the first black preacher to preach to a mixed-race audience. And Harry Hoosier... Uh, had, it was the first black man to have his sermon printed, and it's called the. It was the barren fig tree. And then uh, one of the Methodist bishops, uh, Thomas Koch, described Harry Hoosier. I believe he is one of the best preachers in the world, and everybody would rather hear him preach than the Bishop Francis Asbury. And uh, anyway, so this revival spreads. And then Asbury ordains Richard Allen, who founded the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia in 1816. And now the Revolutionary War takes place, and the, uh, we break from the king, we have something unique in our declaration, all men are created equal. And um, then we have uh, the French Revolution. And the French Revolution ends up becoming a mob, and they're like chopping off the heads of all these different people. And during this time, we almost get into a war with France, and the president is John Adams, and he declares a day of fasting. Could you imagine the president declaring a day of fasting? As the people of the United States are still held in jeopardy by the insidious acts of a foreign nation, as well as by the dissemination among them of those principles subversive. To the foundations of all religious, moral, and social obligations, I hereby recommend the day of solemn humiliation, fasting, and prayer that the citizens call to mind our numerous offenses against the Most High God, confess them before him with sincerest penitence, implore his pardoning mercy through the great mediator and redeemer for our past transgressions, and through the grace of his Holy Spirit, we may yield a suitable obedience to his righteous requisitions, Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so what happens in America is a second great awakening revival. And so you had preachers uh, there in Kentucky, and uh, one of them, um, they had camp meetings. And uh, in Kentucky, they had a pastor, had a small church, and he got the men to pray one Saturday a month for revival. And they had a meeting, and 500 people show up. And then they had, uh, next year, 1,500 people show up. The next year, 8,000. The next year, 15,000. The next year, 25,000 people from like uh, seven different states. And they're traveling miles. And there's like 30,000 people meeting in the woods. And again, they don't have microphones, and so they would build platforms, and every 50 yards would be another platform, and somebody else would be preaching. You know, there'd be one group, and they're singing praise and worship, and another group, they're down on their knees repenting, and uh, it's all happening at the same time. And uh, out of this second Great Awakening revival, you have American Bible Society started, American Tract Society, Society for Temperance, and different denominations, and prison reform, hospitals, and so forth, and missionaries being sent out around the world, and the abolitionist movement, Gets a shot in the arm, and that's when it really takes off. And so uh, Napoleon in France uh, sells the Louisiana Territory. Thomas Jefferson sends Lewis and Clark to explore it. And a few few years later, some Indians walk all the way from the northwest to St. Louis, Missouri, looking for the book to heaven that they must have heard about. And St. Louis was having a Methodist uh, Bible conference. And uh, the the denomination was one of the largest in the country at the time. And they print about these Northwest Indians looking for the book to heaven. And so a guy named uh, Marcus Whitman, he's a doctor, and his wife Narcissa, they go all the way from Massachusetts to St. Louis all the way to Walla Walla, Washington. And they begin to evangelize these Indians. And uh, it starts the Oregon Trail. And then there's a haystack prayer meeting. So, Massachusetts Williams College, some students are walking back to class and it begins to rain and they hide under a haystack. And while they're there, they pray for world missions. And then they decide to commit their lives to world missions. And then the rain stops and they go back to class and they tell the other students, We just committed our lives to world missions. Well, the students start committing their lives to world missions. And this group of young people begins to send out thousands of missionaries all around the world. And it changes nations. They go to China. They go to Burma. They go to, you know, Hawaii. And um, the first one was Adoniram Judson and his wife that went to Burma. And uh, the missionaries to Hawaii. The second boatload of missionaries to Hawaii had a black woman on it, Betsy Stockton. And here she is teaching them the gospel on the beaches. And, um, and then the chiefess, Kiyopulani gets saved and she just decides she's gonna defy Pele, the volcano god, and she walks down into the crater and comes back alive and it sparks this great awakening that spreads through the entire Hawaiian Islands. But again, young people that decide that they love Jesus, like Zinzendorf, I have one passion, it's Jesus, Jesus only. You know, uh God, I've looked through history and it's always the preaching of the law before people see their need for the lamb, right? I mean, uh, the Bible says that the law is is a mirror. And if think of a bathroom, you got a mirror and you got soap and water. The mirror shows you how dirty your face is, but it has no power to cleanse your face. But it creates the desire in you to take advantage of the soap and the water. (laughs) The law shows you you're a sinner, but the law has no power to cleanse you of your sin but it creates the desire in you to take advantage of the blood of the lamb to wash you of all your sins. Uh, so, but it's also in times of crises that people turn to Christ. How many of you turned to Christ when everything was perfect in your life? How many of you is a crisis bigger than you are? And there's no way out and you flat on your back, you look up and say, God help. And in his mercy, he draws you and delivers you out of your crises, right? And so what's a nation but a whole bunch of individuals? What's the world that a whole bunch of individuals, right? God loves you. He wants you to love him back. And he has plan A and plan B. Plan A is he blesses us so much, we turn to him out of gratefulness. If that doesn't work, there is plan B. He lets things get tough. And we turn to him out of desperation. His goal is to have us turn to him. He's jealous for us, but he won't force us. The moment God would force you to love him, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him and he would know that your response is not a pure voluntary love response. And so he he doesn't force you to love him, but he wants it. And he has these little positive and negative motivations. But God is a personal God. To think of it, throughout all eternity, his justice precluded him being loved. What do you mean? Being a just God means he has to judge every sin. If he does not judge a sin, his silence is effectively giving consent to the sin. Because in law, silence equals consent. Remember the wedding ceremonies, the pastor says, anybody against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're sitting there silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. So if there are sins going on and God is silent and not judging them, he's effectively giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to sin, he's no longer a just God. He denies his just nature. He denies himself. He unGods himself. He's cast out of heaven. His very nature is that he has to judge every sin. And because he is so just, nobody could, he, nothing could love him. Because if they stepped out of line one time, his just side would have to cast him out. But deep down, God's a God of love. So he came up with the plan of redemption where his own son would become man and would be the lamb of God to take the judgment for all of our sins so that he could be still a just God and that he judges every sin, but he's a loving God and that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. We sang that song today, hallelujah, right? to to he that came and made a way. He made a way so you can approach this almighty, perfect, just God without any consciousness of sin, without any fear of judgment because the judgment's been paid. You have the freedom of conscience in America. God is once, force makes hypocrites just persuasion only that makes converts he doesn't want you to follow him because you're afraid that that the government's going to come after you he's making an appeal to your heart he loves you he wants you to love him back he loves you infinitely he has an infinite desire for you to love him back but all love is personal it's you in him your relationship your heart he made the heavens and he made your heart He's made you to love him and he's made a way for you to love him back.